Again, if you have your Bible, I hope, you're, I hope you found your way to James chapter 4, uh, verses 11. Again, 11 through 17 is where we're going to pitch our tent this morning. Um, now, at this point in time, you've realized that we are full steam ahead into the 2020 political season, the 2020 election season. We've had our Republican National Convention, we've had our Democratic National Convention, and, and so if, if you have friends on either side of the aisle, one thing that you've probably heard um, at this point by now is that the other side is unequivocally evil, period. Unequivocally evil. Democrats are evil, Republicans are evil, uh, maybe you even got some friends on, 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 on that's standing kind of in the middle that says both of them are evil. But you have probably heard this at some point in time. Maybe it's not your friends. Maybe it's the news channels you're watching. But you have at some point in time heard someone say that these people are, are 100% clearly intending to destroy our country, period. Now, there's a couple of reasons why you may hear that. The, the first reason is that both, both of these sides, so to speak, in our culture, in our world, have some, have some particular uh, things, have some particular positions that they take that can be deeply troubling to Scripture. And, and, and it might not be, I'm not talking about a particular candidate. I'm talking about, I'm talking about the people that, that, are, that are sometimes aligned under the banner, the people that say that I am affiliated with this particular group of people. Sometimes and oftentimes, they have some very troubling positions as it relates to Scripture. But then also, the, there's, a, the, 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 there's another reason that we tend to look at these sides and just and see, and, and see in those sides pure and unadulterated evil. It's because we see the world so vastly different. When you move from one side to the next, one thing that stands out to you is that those people that are on the other, the either side of this po political divide see the world entirely different than the person that's on the other side of that political divide. But there's another reason, and it's more, uh, far, far more simple uh, reason. It's because they slander. It's because the people that are saying that these people, all these people are intending for the, the, the destruction of our country, that these people, all these people, that they mean us nothing but harm, that these people, all these people are evil. It's slander. It's slander. Last week we discussed the difference between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. And we want to continue that chat this morning by turning to another dimension of worldly wisdom. You know, as we discussed last week, wisdom is not just confined to what we know, but it is also demonstrated in what we do. And it is not only defined by what we know and what we do, but it is also defined by how that knowledge leads us to behave. In other words, how it shapes our attitude. Which means that wisdom, as we talked about last week, has not only in knowledge, but wisdom has an action and wisdom has an attitude. Now, this is not only limited to godly wisdom. In fact, worldly wisdom carries an action or actions 
and worldly wisdom carries an attitude. For example, last week we spent a lot of time focused on the attitudes of worldly wisdom, that being jealousy and selfish ambition in particular. The mentality that drives us to either look at people or look past people to get whatever it is that we want. But this week I want to take a look at, a, at two particular actions of worldly wisdom. The actions that flow from this wisdom, the wisdom of me. And those actions are slander and boasting. First, slander. Slander is the act of talking with malicious intent to ruin another person's reputation or the way that we perceive them. Slander is to diminish someone. It is to stain someone. It is is to remove shine from someone. The reason why you can say that slander is an action of this worldly wisdom that James is dealing with in chapter 3 and in chapter 4 is because the attitudes of selfish ambition, jealousy, and the pursuit of me are often main sources of fuel for slander. My infatuation with me often leads to my slander of you. In order to put myself in the best possible light, I have to ensure that you are represented in your worst. It's why, again, when you look at a lot of the discussions around politics today, it isn't enough to say that I disagree with you and that, or, or that I believe your, your political uh, positions on certain policies to be wrong. No, I have to ascribe the worst qualities possible to those that I disagree with. I have to say, oftentimes, based on nothing more but our disagreements alone, not my actions, not even, not even my words oftentimes, but just our disagreements on the policies. I have to say oftentimes that, or I, or I oftentimes say, or many people oftentimes say, they hate us. They hate me. They hate our country. And they are plotting our demise. You see, this kind of talk is what leads to conflicts. This kind of talk is what leads to fights. This kind of talk is what leads to wars. And this kind of talk proceeds from conflict. This kind of talk flows out of fights. This kind of talk oozes out of wars. This is worldly wisdom. This is the wisdom of jealousy and selfish ambition, the wisdom of the demonic, the wisdom of me. By the way, doesn't it make perfect sense that this would follow James's warnings about conflict? James gives warnings in chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, and, and then as we move out of that section of warnings, then we hear slander. Do not speak evil of your brothers and sisters. Slander is oftentimes the next step in conflict, isn't it? We fight, we argue, and then what happens? We begin our campaign to get as many people on our side of the argument as we possibly can. When we're asked to restate the conflict, we may share parts of our neighbor's arguments, but we don't share the whole thing. We leave out certain details that may possibly put them in a positive light with those that we are discussing this issue about or this issue with. 
when we're given an opportunity to explain why they took the position that they took, whether we understand their reasons or not, we fill in what we don't know with the worst intentions possible. We, do, we dehumanize them. We make them out to be pure, unadulterated evil. You see, when we are scared and hurt and frustrated or angry, we convince ourselves that the best way to release that hurt, that fear, that frustration, that anger, is to bring down those who we believe to be the source. Now, this is not a call to not speak truthfully about an issue. This is not a call to not correct. This is not a call to not confront when necessary, but rather this is a call to check our hearts before we speak and to make sure that our desire is to serve others when we speak and not destroy others when we speak. This is a call to check our hearts to ensure that our hearts are committed more to winning hearts and souls than winning arguments. You know, this past Friday night, we lost a phenomenal actor to colon cancer. He was beloved by many for the gifting that he showed on the movie screen and for all of the many beloved roles that he played, roles with great dignity and heroism. But he was also beloved because of the class and the dignity that he carried, him, that he carried uh, himself off the screen, he always walked and carried himself with great class and great dignity, and it was always on display even until the grave. Very few people, in fact, knew of his illness. He fought for four years with colon cancer as he cranked out masterful performance after masterful performance. But he chose not to tell many people except his loved ones, until he ultimately died just this weekend. During his battle, instead of focusing solely on himself, he turned his attention to others. He spent time with terminally ill children, speaking about their plight, never, never speaking about his. Even during the pandemic, he labored to raise funds for hospitals and, and minority communities that were struggling to get uh, a PPE, that were struggling to get protective equipment like masks and gloves and things that were necessary to fight during this pandemic. And there was one video in which he was um, um, speaking about this particular effort that he was undergoing to raise those funds to supply PPE to these hospitals. And in this video, he was frail, he was slim, and he was talked about. He was talked about bad. People said that maybe he had a drug issue, and they were more than happy to share that and post that under the, under the video where all the world could see. They laughed, they joked about this man. They thought it was funny to see him in this fragile state. He was so joked and so talked about that he ended up taking the video down. This was a man that was suffering and in his final days, he was slandered. Sometimes we don't know 
what people are going through. And so it's best not to speak ill of them when we do not know what's going on. You see, slander happens when we are more concerned with being witty and funny than we are concerned about being compassionate. When it is more important to get a dig in on somebody in order to elevate ourselves and and, and to elevate our status rather than commit to elevating others. Slander happens when we are more concerned with winning an argument than winning a heart, winning a soul. Here's another thing I want us to notice about slander, this act of worldly wisdom. Notice where James brings it up. He brings it up after verse 10. Verse 10 says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Well, what do we hear from James right before the admonishment? We hear, humble yourselves. This makes perfect sense because, remember, humility and selflessness are the attitudes of godly wisdom. And thus they lead to actions filled with graciousness and gentleness and mercy. So what, so what, so what can we learn from what James is saying here by connecting this admonishment about speaking evil of our brothers right next to the call to humble ourselves? This is what we can learn. When we slander, it is because there is a deficiency of humility. The psalmist confirms this connection for us in Psalms 101 where it says, Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. You hear the connection? Whoever slanders his neighbor, whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, Slander is the action, but the attitude is haughtiness and arrogance. In other words, slander often flows from the absence of humility. Why do I speak evil against my brother unnecessarily? Why do I misrepresent their positions and their arguments? Why do I assign the ugliest intentions to their opinions or actions? Because I convince myself that it is more important to place me in the better light. The desire to destroy the reputation of another is often an attempt to preserve or elevate my own. But notice another thing about the psalmist's words about slander. Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Why on earth would the Lord take what seems like such a heavy-handed approach to slander? I believe James gives us an answer as we read the rest of this portion about slander in chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Picking up again in in chapter 4, the latter half of verse 11, look with me. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. Listen to James. He is basically saying when you decide in spite of God's commands to not speak evil of your brother, when you decide to speak evil of your brother, to slander your brother, to place yourself in a better light than your brother, to not represent your brother in the best possible light because you fear that they may be accepted and you may be rejected, then you are not just showing disdain for your brother, but you are showing disdain for God's law. And ultimately, God himself. 
In other words, in slander, the haughtiness and arrogance is not just turned on your human brother or your human sister. It's not just turning to them and saying, I deserve the attention. I deserve to be heard. I I deserve to be seen. I deserve to be accepted. Not you or rather than you or more than you. It's not just there, though. The arrogance is also turned towards God because we are saying in so many words, your counsel, God, is not the best counsel. You see, when we slander, we are saying in that moment, God, your way doesn't work. And I'm not quite sure if you know how to handle these matters. James also gives us another important thought to consider in verse 12. He says, there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Why don't we speak evil of our brothers and sisters? Well, according to James, because it is an attempt to put ourselves in the seat of the lawgiver and the judge. In those moments, we become the determiners of who is worthy of grace. In those moments, we take on the position of the ones who can read the hearts of men and women. Again, it is an arrogance, but it is an arrogance of a different type. One is an arrogance of how we relate to man, but on the other side, it is an arrogance in how we relate back to God. One more thing about slander and speaking evil of one another. Pay attention to the language that James uses in verse 12. But who are you to judge your neighbor? That kind of language always sends my mind to the great commandment. Love God, the first, and the second is likened unto it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Is there any connections to slander and neighborly love? And the answer is, of course there is. Leviticus 19, verses 16 through 18, we hear these words. Listen. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. Verse 17, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Did you hear that? How do you love neighbor as yourself in verse 18? How do you not hate your neighbor, as it is stated in verse 17? One way is by not slandering them, as it is written in verse 16. Our commitment to not speak of another in a way that stains them, in a way that taints them, in a way that paints them in a negative light, for our own self-seeking purposes, for our own promotion, for our own uh, elevation of self. That is a commitment to love. You know, there was a documentary on TV just recently about the spread of misinformation and disinformation in America. And and they were uh, interviewing a communications specialist who, who offered this extremely insightful glimpse into why there is so much misinformation out here. 
She said this, a lot of what fuels misinformation and, what is, and that which is being called fake news is hatred. She didn't say all of it. She said a lot of it is hatred. And she continues, it is essentially some group of people either misunderstanding or having some sort of violent feelings about another group of people. In other words, when we don't love people, we don't care whether we get the facts right about those people. When we don't love people, we don't care whether we are representing their opinions accurately. When we don't love people, we don't care if we cast those people in a light that dehumanizes them or in a light that lowers their value and diminishes their dignity in our eyes. It doesn't matter why we slander. When we slander, it demonstrates that not only do we have a lack of humility towards man and God, but it also demonstrates that we have a lack of love. Like it, is all, like it often is the case with our speech, slander says far more about me than it does about those that I am speaking against or about. And so slander is an action of worldly wisdom. Now, quickly, let's turn in to our second and final action of this morning, the action of boasting. Verse 13, it says of cha- in chapter 4 of James, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such town and spend a year there, trade, and make profit. Yet you do not know what, your, what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. So let's deal with a couple of ways that this text is often misrepresented. First of all, James is not discounting in this text the need for planning, the need for strategy, the need to set an objective, to set goals, to set measurements about your performance, um, whether it be on the job or whether it be in some other effort. He is not discounting planning. Some people use this text to connect planning to worldly wisdom, but, but that but, but planning is actually godly wisdom. We find that all over Proverbs. In particular, one verse, Proverbs 21, verse 5, it says, The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. In Proverbs 6, we hear about the ant who, who, uh, who we are told to consider her ways and be wise. And this, this ant, The Proverbs tells us, prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. She prepares. She plans. But planning is not just in Proverbs. We even hear planning spoken of in glowing terms or in positive terms when we hear Jesus. As Jesus is laying out the cost of discipleship, the cost to follow him, he likens our need to calculate that cost. With two people, one a builder 
He says, before the builder gets out and begins to build his tower, he considers all that is involved in the construction of this tower. He plans for the building of this tower. He also likens the cost of discipleship to a king. He says, before a king goes out to battle with another king, he first stops and he thinks and he considers the tactics of war. He considers the amount of people that he has. He considers the amount of people that the other king has, that, will, that they will, that, and, and, and how that will impact the, the probability of winning the war. Jesus is saying it's natural and necessary to plan. It's a good thing. He doesn't, he doesn't speak of those things as bad things. He speaks of those things as good things. So James is not encouraging us to live life on the whim. Planning is good. Planning is right. Planning is godly. So go and open a savings account and, and contribute towards retirement funds and learn how to invest your money and learn how to set real and attainable goals for yourself and for your family. There is nothing wrong with doing any of that because those things offer you opportunities to serve the kingdom, to serve your neighbor, to serve your family, and to give back to them. There's another misread of this text that is very popular, and it is to think that James is saying we have to preface everything we plan to do with the statement, if the Lord wills. We read of plans being made all through the Old Testament, however, and all through the New Testament by faithful men and by faithful women, and they don't begin by stating, if the Lord wills. So what is James saying in this text? Well, one theologian quotes, or one theologian writes about that particular statement, if the Lord wills. He says this, James isn't saying that before we do anything, we always need to say out loud, if the Lord wills. The point is to have a mindset that says, I need the grace of God, and I am dependent on the will of God in every facet of my life. There's nothing wrong with saying, if the Lord wills, if you choose to. But what's, mo but what's most important is that you understand the sentiment behind the statement. You understand the heart behind the statement. James isn't warning against planning, and he isn't warning against leaving out if the Lord wills in your planning. James is warning against living the kind of life that discounts God's control over it. He's warning against living the kind of life that says, I have complete control over it. He's warning against living the kind of life that says, my planning and my gifting and my intellect and my organization and my, 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 my savings and my money will get me wherever I want to go. No, 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 no. All of our steps are subject to the Lord's grace and sovereign hand. We are not in Control. Let me say that again. You are not in control. That's what James is warning against. Now, this is not very American of me. Not a very American idea. We're the country that tells our children, if you put your mind to it, you can accomplish anything. We're the country that tells our children that you are in control of your own destiny. Of course, there are 
There's a little truth to that, so to speak. Our hard work does place us in a position in life that the lack of hard work will not. Our commitment to our studies will open more doors than the lack of study will. Our discipline will most likely afford us more opportunities than a lack of discipline will. But we are not the masters of our own destinies. And putting our mind to it is not the only factor involved in accomplishing anything. We are not in control. You know, there's one Bible scholar, professor, teacher, who recalls an experiment that he conducted with 12 of his American seminary students. He actually was going through the parable of the prodigal son. And this parable obviously is a popular Bible parable about a son who who demands his birthright from his father. And then he leaves his family. He leaves the safety, the comfort, and the security of his home and his father. And he goes off on his own. He engages and indulges in wild living, and then a famine comes to the land. And this, 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 this young son, this, this son, loses everything in the process of wasteful living and famine. And he is left basically eating with the pigs. And at that point, he realizes, I need to go back to my father. I need to go back to my father's house. And he returns, and his father welcomes him. It's a picture, it's a gospel picture of God welcoming us. And there's other things, other implications in the story. But this scholar, he asks his students, American seminary students, all 12 of them to read the story, and they come back. And to his surprise, none of them mentioned the famine. Not one. It was something that even he, he himself overlooked. And so to see if it was just a mere coincidence with him and his 12, he called on another 50 American students and asked them to read this story. And of the 50, that he, or rather of the 100, because he called on 100, of the 100, only six recounted the famine in the recall of their, or, the, or in the retelling of the parable. The scholar decided to take it one more step, and he went to Russia, and, and, he, and he, uh, he, he, he took 50 Russian students, and he had them read the story and then retell the story. And out of the 50, 42 noticed the famine. Now, many of them paid no attention to the prodigal son's squandering of his goods and property. What happened? Powell believed that it was a result, the, 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 the scholar's name was Mark Allen Powell. He believed that it was a result of psychological trauma that the Russian students had collectively um, endured. Because in 1941, the German army came and captured St. Petersburg, Russia, and they caused a 900-day famine in which 600,000, over 600,000, close to 700,000 Russians died of starvation. 
So while the Americans had their attention on the wastefulness of the sun, the Russians had their attention on the self-sufficiency and the arrogance of the sun, the arrogance that the sun had in himself, not realizing that he wasn't in control. You see, we are all conditioned in some way by our culture's wisdom and our culture's need to be reconditioned. I'm sorry, and our, I'm sorry, we are all conditioned in some way by our culture's wisdom. And we all need to be reconditioned with wisdom from above. So for many of us in America, we need to be reconditioned to understand that we are not nearly in as much control as we think we are. We are not in control. You don't even have to go far. You don't have to go to Russia to find someone else who sees this or who sees that story this way, who notices the famine. If you go to someone who has fallen on hard times, that feel like they were completely outside of their control, then they will probably notice that. But see, so many of us, we have not experienced those hard times. We've been given opportunities. Very few doors were closed to us. And so, therefore, we think that all of this is just our doing. And on the other side, we see people that maybe aren't doing as well as we are, and we think that all of that is simply their doing. And we don't recognize that it's a little bit of both. Yes, it's hard work. Yes, it's planning. The Bible encourages that. Make no mistake, brothers and sisters, it is God's hand at work. And never boast in your own attributes and never boast in your own accomplishments as if it is only you, because it is not. Never plan as if it is only you, because it is not. You see, with this moment, what this moment should show you more than anything is that we are not in control. No matter how much we plan, no matter how much we strategize, no matter how wealthy we are, no matter how, uh, no matter how healthy we are, we are not in control in this moment. And certainly in this moment, we should know it like we've never known it before, that we are not in control and that life is a vapor. To this day, over 180,000 people have died in the course of a spring and a summer in this country. 180,000 people have died. That tells you that life is a vapor, life is a mist, and that we are not in control. James is calling us to live in light of these realities, that God is sovereign and that we are not. We are not in control of our lives. God is. This is what James means when he says boasting. It is to pursue the type of life that ignores God's control over it. And James calls all that boasting evil. To live with that kind of self-deception is evil. This is what it means, again, to walk in worldly wisdom. This is what it means to be friends with the world. So what do we do to disrupt these actions of worldly wisdom, what do we do? The key is in verse 10, like it was last week. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. You see, both slander and boasting suffer from the same illness, a lack of humility before God. 
appointing to self as the source of all fulfillment. Appointing, appointing to self as the source of all pursuits. Our tendency to speak ill of others is because we think so highly of ourselves that we think we have a right to speak negatively about others. Our tendency to boast in the control we have in our lives is because we think so highly of ourselves that we believe that we are in control when we are actually are not. Both of these actions spring forth from a sort of self-sufficiency, a sort of internal struggle to be our own gods. And James says to that, humble yourselves before the Lord, which means to realize that you are not God, that you are not in control of your destiny, and that you are not in the seat of judge and lawgiver. There is only one who is, and that one is the one who has come down from the heavens, the one that came down from the heavens, the one that took the form of humanity, laying in a manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes, the one who lived a perfect life, a life without sin. And the one, though he lived with a life without sin and was guiltless, was found guilty by the masses and took his rugged cross, carried it upon his shoulders all the way to Calvary's hill, where he was hung on that cross. And in being hung on that cross, the wrath of God was poured out upon him. And that wrath that, 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 that wrath that he took upon himself was for you and it was for me. And, and, and he went to the grave and, and, and in three days he rose out of the grave with all power in his hand. And he ascended into heavens, into the heavens later on. And, and now he presently sits in the heavens at the right-hand side of God the Father making continuous intercession for his people. Humble yourselves before that Lord and that Savior, to look to that Lord, to look to that Savior every single day and to say, he has given me mercy, so I will speak with mercy. To look to that Savior every day of your life and to say, I am not in control. He is in control. And so I place my life, I place my plans, I place my dealings, I place my savings in his hands. How do we, how do we wrestle against our boasting? How do we wrestle against our slander? We wrestle against it by looking to the one who removes all cause for boasting. We wrestle with it by looking to the one who has spoken so highly of us and has shown us so much grace and so much mercy through salvation that we have no room to speak ill of others. We wrestle with it by looking to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me?